episode 137, three recent interviews. First up, Thomas Walkington, a member of the US Navy's VXE-6 squadron. This episode I'm speaking to Thomas Walkington and Thomas, what was your path to Antarctica? Well, I um, joined. I enlisted in the Navy in 1967 out of high school, um, as a so I wouldn't get drafted uh, into the Army because um, that was during the Vietnam era. And in the Navy, um, coming out of boot camp training, you either get shore duty or sea duty, um, and then there's rotation. So I got shore duty. For my first two years, which was the Mojave Desert in California, um, and then when I get has receiving orders uh, for my second rotation, uh, and it was going to be to the USS Kitty Hawk, which is an aircraft carrier. I grew up in a small dairy town in northern Illinois of about 300 people, and uh, the USS Kitty Hawk um, housed 5,000 people. So I was a little nervous about that. And at the same time that the orders were processing, there was a bulletin asking for volunteers for VXE-6, which is Antarctic Development Squadron 6. And this was the Navy's only peacetime squadron during the Vietnam uh, period. And so it was interesting to me because I didn't want to be on a ship with 5,000 people. And... uh, so then you had to go through a series of tests, um, and you also had to qualify for the billet that they were replacing. I met all of those tests, and that was what launched me to Antarctica. So a bit of an adventure. Were the VXE postings, well, sorry, VXE six postings um, popular? Were you up against many other candidates for those roles? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I would suspect so. Um, although in, in, I was naval, naval, naval aviation, so a squadron would go to an aircraft carrier or some other location. So um, I, I think if you were up for the adventure, although I don't know that that many people actually wanted to go to Antarctica. Um, so. Uh, I just don't know how many people applied, but no, there were only a certain number of slots. And so I'm, I'm thinking, I would say that there was a relative amount of competition, although they don't tell you that when you're applying. And what was your specialty within the aviation squadron? Well, my, uh, my, I was an aviation storekeeper. Um, and so, you know, a lot of you know, typical you know, logistics and warehouse work. And uh, so that's what uh, I replaced or took the spot. And the um, VXE-6 squadron also rotated out. You know, so there were, every year they replaced people because it was on a two-year rotation. So you were in for two years and it was the alternate year. So you know, basically half the squadron left and they were replaced with another you know, uh, set of, of new people. And how did VXE-6 transport you from the United States to Antarctica? Um, well, we had um, 
the VXE uh, squadron at that time, again, was Navy's only peacetime squadron. And at that time, it was the only country that was providing uh, air transport to in Antarctica. So we flew scientists to all the different stations. We flew, you know, um, we were the air, air carrier, if you will, for uh, research stations in different many of the different countries um, with postings, um, research stations in Antarctica. I think there were uh, basically there were C-130s and C-121s, which was the Pegasus, and then um, uh, HU-1D helicopters, Hueys. Um, so those were the three uh, modes of air transport that the squadron maintained and utilized. And operating out of Christchurch? Uh, Christchurch was the forward headquarters. Um, so that was also another thing, If because you were in the squadron for two years, um, some people would rotate. If you were on the ice one year, you could be in Christchurch the second year. Um, so there's a the interesting piece um, to um, my work in Antarctica, actually. Um, so I volunteered for the squadron. I got that. And then we were the only uh, air transport in the continent. And because of that, the squadron had its own pararescue team. And so that was also one of a kind that was the um, in the United States military. There was no other unit like that in the U.S. military. And you also, um, it was a two six-man teams, and they were all men at that time. Um, and so half of the team rotated out. So there was, um, again, volunteering for another opportunity. So I volunteered. I tried out for the pararescue team. It's like trying out for the football team or the basketball team. Um, there were quite a few people that tried out, just, and there, but there were only six spots. And so I did that, and I qualified um, mostly by elimination because a lot of people dropped out because of the rigor. Some people got injured. And so I just happened to be one of the last men standing that were, uh, that made it to replace that team. So I was a member of the, um, VXE six pararescue team as well. So skydiving into situations when people needed yep. assistance. Um, yes. And that, that was the purpose. Um, though in the two, and, and so part of this is then because of the, being a member of the prayer rescue team, you had to make two trips to the, to the ice. So you didn't have an opportunity to be, you know, to be in Christchurch for part, you know, one part of your, your tour. So, um, and then, yeah, so we were on call. So everybody had their regular job, like I was, as I was an aviation storekeeper. So you could, you could have be any other um, primary uh, designated skill, but then um, be a, on a pararescue team. And of course, that required um, the gold wings. So you had to make 10, 10 jumps to qualify. And then there were training jumps. So we were continuous training. Fortunately, during my time, the, uh, we didn't have, we were on call several times, but we did not actually uh, perform any any missions. Um, the uh, the one exception being was the when I was on the, I was on the Pegasus when it crashed. So can you talk us through that 
accident. I know that many listeners are familiar with the wreckage, but I've never spoken to anyone that was actually on the aircraft. Well, it was, um, so the, the, you know, deployment for the summer season in Antarctica and to McMurdo, which was the, the base and the, uh, it was C one thirties and the, C-121. So C-130s, you know, are turboprop jets. Uh, C-121 was actually, this was the last Lockheed Constellation C-121 still flying in the U.S. military. Uh, so it was transporting personnel to Antarctica for the summer season. Um, all, all the planes took off, um, you know, at an interval our plane was the last one to take off. And as you're probably familiar, um, the Antarctic weather um, is infamous for changing uh, from one minute to the next or periods. So um, the interesting thing about the um, Lockheed 121 as a propeller driven plane, it didn't have a lot of, um, I don't want to say capacity, but uh, to make it to the ice, it didn't have the ability to turn around if there was a problem. Um, so we had passed. We had passed the point point of of safe return, which means there was no turning back when there was a, a report of bad weather. Uh, so. We knew that we were flying into difficult weather um, and the plane had no choice but to continue forward. When we got to the, to the ice, um, there were you know, significant crosswinds, um, no visibility, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, um, it is the most difficult environment in the, in the, the world. And uh, the weather, is, even in the summer, is extreme. Uh, so in one of these storms, um, this is the kind of thing that would happen occasionally. Um, we made it there, but uh, also, as you may know, navigation is very difficult because of the difference between the magnetic pole and et cetera. I'm not a navigator. Um, but uh, it's very difficult to navigate in the Antarctic, even in the best of times. Um, we were, we ended up being close to the airstrip to Willie Field, but we didn't, uh, from my knowledge, being a passenger, we didn't know exactly where we were at. Um, we were informed that we would make a pass and then if it was deemed safe to land we would land um that was the first pass then there then there was a second pass then there was a third pass Then there was a fourth pass. And during this period, 
Uh, it went from joking to lots of comments. And then each time we passed, things got a little bit, uh, people got a little bit more anxious, a little bit more nervous. Um, and I believe it was on the sixth pass that we were informed that we were going to attempt a landing. So as we did that, the, the cabin of the plane went from rather noisy to very quiet to no noise to just the shaking of the plane as it was going in for the landing. And for me personally, I was sitting maybe a couple of rows back of the starboard wing, which is the, uh, when the plane went in, it did a couple, maybe a couple of 360s um, that lost the starboard wing. And I remember thinking that this was it, that there was only two things that were going to happen. One was I was going to wake up someplace else in a different world, or I was going to wake up or come out of this and everything was going to be fine. And uh, fortunately for myself and the other 84 passengers and crew on the plane, there were no fatalities. Um, we ended up landing, I, th uh, I think within a quarter of a mile of the airstrip. So, um, even though now there were no fatalities, no serious injuries, um, we, um, they did not know where we were at. So when we, uh, were, had made our attempted landing, um, they, didn't know where we uh, were. It actually took, and I think by chance, that uh, took um, four hours for them to locate us uh, coming out of Willie Field. Um, and those that four-hour window is what um, we were taught in pararescue and just in uh, Antarctic survival is that that's about your maximum time of survival so you were sat in the wreckage for that entire four hours waiting to no, see what would happen um no we didn't uh, because it's a aluminum aircraft so we evacuated the plane uh, because it would only get colder uh, but then um, and there was some survival gear as I, I remember we set up a couple of tents um and um, I th and I actually think some people chose to go back into the plane because it was actually still very windy. So the, you know these were blizzard um, whiteout conditions um, to be out and about. Nobody wandered off. I think fortunately, um, that we were just very fortunate to have been 
located within that four hours. So, so that was uh, uh, the Antarctic experience for me was uh, being in Antarctica. That was my second. That was my second tour. Um, so I'd been there. I had uh, my first deployment was in 1969. Um, the second one was um, this date was October 8th, 1970. Um, and and so October 8th, I now count as my birthday. So I'll be uh, 52 <laughs> years old this year. <laughs> I've never been any, never been through anything that drastic and traumatic and that you're able to speak about it even at this distance I, I find remarkable what um how did they process you back to McMurdo did they were they able to get vehicles out and bring everyone back in one go or was oh. it a, a, a shuttle well I was well we called them a cattle truck um basically it was a large truck with a uh, it was like a semi truck with a large trailer, and uh, everybody piled in. I think that they got us all. Well, there's 85 people, and I would have to tell you, I can't tell you exactly how that went. Uh, I think the majority got into this uh, back of this tr- truck, and that was then. And then, of course, they closed the, the back of the truck, and it's completely dark. And it was about the same as it was, felt almost like when we were coming in to land. Uh, but oh, at least we knew we were we knew we were safe. <laughs> so, but then and... processing processing wise, I I thought about this with uh, the questions that you kindly sent me ahead of time. Is that um, things were just you just went on you know the normal business. You were you know checked in, got yourself, got your bunk, took all that. There was no I don't recall any special processing or follow up. I, I, if I you know, remember correctly, there might've been three or four people that were sent back to Christchurch um, for one reason or another. Uh, but it was just, you know, you just went on and that was it. You're, you know, pick up and the next day it was like nothing happened. So violent crash and then welcome to Antarctica starts your deployment. Yep. Six and a half days a week. He worked six and a half days a week because he didn't want to really have any downtime because there wasn't really much else to do. Um, so it was you know, Sunday afternoon was your half day off. And you were managing the stores there as well. That was straight into the same role that you'd had in the States. Right. And they were actually, yeah, they were, we had, you know, and actually we bunked, there were six of us, we bunked in the warehouse. Um, so you slept upstairs and when you step, stepped out the door, you stepped into your work. You went and went up to the, um, to the chow hall for meals. Um, you know, so yeah, everybody had their assignments and it was just business as usual. And being a United States Navy facility, was McMurdo run as a dry station? And what do you mean by dry? No, no alcohol, like on the ships. Oh, no, no, no. There's plenty of alcohol. In fact, okay. one of my off, off, one of my off uh, 
um, assignment was that I cleaned up in the, the officer's mess on, on the, or the bar on the mornings. So yeah, oh, there, and, and one time, one time we tried to make our own alcohol out of potatoes and, um, that, that ended up in a, an explosion. Um, so that didn't go well, but, uh, <laughs> actually alcohol was, is one of the, you know, that's, there was plenty of alcohol and it was also that it killed people because if you wandered outside drunk, uh, got disoriented and didn't get from point A to point B, there were more than one occasion when somebody was found uh, unconscious or dead uh, because of that. Oh, I would just imagine, you know, surviving something like the Pegasus crash, something that violent and dramatic and dying from something is... Yeah. But also... Yeah, well, and you, of course, you didn't travel, you, you were never supposed to travel alone, walk alone, drive alone. Um, you always reported uh, from, from McMurdo to Willie Field, I don't remember how far it was, uh, not that far, but, and of course, it was across the ice, um, and they had the green flags, and so you watched those, you radioed ahead, because even in those few miles, the weather could change and you could end up being disoriented and drive off someplace. So, or if you were out, um, you know, the, the service personnel that, you know, weren't out and about a lot, to, uh, you know, wandering around, uh, there were occasions. I know that I and two of my friends one time went for a walk and the, the guy in the middle uh, suddenly disappeared. Uh, fortunately, he popped back up. Um, so crevasses, you just you know, don't don't go where it's not marked. And uh, yeah, so, so was Antarctica a big deal in your life, or another deployment with a, a slightly different scenery, or did it affect uh, your, no. your career or your perspectives <laughs> oh, much? Um, no, I, it, yes, it did. Uh, absolutely. Um, one, um, as I, I had posted on the, uh, the Facebook page, it, it's a life for me, it was a life experience and it was a life changing experience. And I think that would have been the case, even if I had not been, uh, one of the members, uh, uh personnel on that aircraft, uh, that added, certainly added something to my life perspective, but to be in Antarctica is to be like, obviously no place else on earth. It's so, uh, and you learned, uh, uh, if you didn't, uh, before you learned to respect nature. And that's one of my lessons, um, is that it, you don't mess with mother nature. Um, so, uh, cause she's deadly and, um, to respect, uh, to respect mother nature, but the, just, to be in that environment is is um, is awe inspiring. I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, and of course, that was summer. I don't think I would. Have, I I didn't have that. Nobody asked me to volunteer, and I I don't think I would have volunteered the winter over. That's a very special person and, and a very real different environment. But um, being light twenty four hours a day, um, just just the environment and what's there, um, it's, there's no other experience 
like it. So that piece, and then obviously from my, um, both my being in that crash, um, and from my pararescue experience, um, my philosophy has been, I'm a big, big believer in second chances because I have a second chance. Um, right. and I treat people, well, you appreciate every day. I, you know, I don't, it's not top of mind, uh, every day, but, uh, and I didn't have this epiphany that, you know, I'm, I have this opportunity now, you know, what's my purpose in life. I didn't have anything like that. Although I would say, I, you know, not unlike other people, I wonder what your purpose in life is, but I did feel that I was given a second chance. And so whatever I decided I was going to do, I did it with purpose. Um, and, um, yep. From your Facebook presence, it appears that you have had a very interesting post-Antarctica life. Could you tell listeners what you're up to these days? Um, I had re- I've retired now three years ago as a uh, university professor uh, in public management, nonprofit management. I was chair of an urban and regional studies department and dean of an on-site uh, university program uh, for a number of years. Um, I d- didn't earn my doctorate degree until I was 50, so I always think of myself and refer to myself as a late bloomer. Um, and so from that time, which is now 22 years ago, um, earning my doctorate degree, uh, going to Antarctica and getting married, not in that order, are probably the three uh, significant life uh, post um, that I that have a lot of, of meaning to me. Um, earning my doctorate degree allowed me to teach. Um, it provided another opportunity for me to go to China. So I never, never in the world thought I'd be going to Antarctica. I never in the world thought I'd be going to China, let alone teaching um, university level in China. Uh, so that was a, a very unique uh, experience. It also had a lot of uh, impact or influence on my world view. I normally ask guests to the series what their most inspiring and their most harrowing experience in Antarctica was. And if there's anything more harrowing than the Pegasus accident, it's probably pretty interesting in itself. But um, what what was the most inspiring moment or experience for you on the ice? Um, Most inspiring was actually being there and having the opportunity to be present. But I will tell you, also, because I was a member of the military and I was 20 years old, I was, other than appreciating Antarctica for Antarctica, I was not so much aware of or interested in the actual research that was going on. We were there to support Antarctic research. Um, it didn't it didn't connect with me at the time in terms of the work that was being done and significance of that work. Uh, but being a part of that um, certainly was that was part of the, my life experience that has had stayed with me. Um, other than, um, I wouldn't say more harrowing, but our own uh, just practice missions because um, you know we were trained in 
ice climbing, crevasse rescue, mountain climbing, um, Antarctic survival. We were um, in our practice missions. Um, we were, you know, we'd fly out of Willie Field and at a designated point be dropped in. And then we had to make our um, igloos. Uh, so you created your own shelter. Uh, so learning those survival skills uh, were very important. And fortunately, the, they were all practice, except for the one with the, the experience in, on, the, on the Pegasus crash. Um, my only other interesting piece I would back up and tell you when I, um, as I talked about uh, volunteering for the pararescue team, and uh, going through the exercises and ultimately succeeding. Um, on our first parachute jump, uh, we jumped from uh, Huey and H-U-N-D, and I was the last one in the Huey, so that meant that I sat in the open door. Um, so that uh, was quite a, um, yeah, it's a little bit scary uh, to sit in an open door of a helicopter on your first parachute jump to go up to 3,500 feet um, and then be the first one out uh, when you get the tap on the back of, of your helmet to exit the, the Huey. And I was rather uh, nervous, um, disoriented, trying to remember all the things I was supposed to do. And in the process, when I landed, I landed wrong and I broke my leg in two places and ended up in the Newport Naval Hospital for a number of weeks uh, recovering uh, from the parachute jump. Um, and I spent uh, between a couple of weeks in the hospital and another 10 or so weeks in rehabilitation. Um, you had to be uh, recertified uh, for active duty. And so when I met with the flight surgeon, he, you know, did his examination, asked me some questions, and then wrote on my chit so I could go back to active duty. The Actually, that, that was the uh, first year in 69. And so um, I made it, I made deployment by one day. Um, and then, uh, but as I was getting up from my chair to leave the, the doctor's office, I turned to him and said, so what about parachuting? And he looked at me and said, so if you're crazy enough to go to Antarctica, I guess you're crazy enough to parachute. So he signed my release form so that I could go back to the team. And then I made my second and subsequent jumps um, in Antarctica. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> that's it's wild on on a couple of fronts that those second jumps occurred over the ice but also that the the doctor had that pragmatic military mode that okay all else aside you're going to antarctica so yep and so and then so my so then i had to you know i had to go through some basic stuff again for the uh to make the second jump and actually the second jump even though it was in Antarctica, to me was not as uh, scary, I guess, as the first jump was. Uh, I was just determined that I was going to do it. I feel a little bad having put Thomas through what was clearly some stressful memories for the sake of the series, but I'm really grateful that he spoke to Ice Coffee about the crash of the Pegasus. The wreckage is a significant landmark in the Ross Island vicinity, and the incident itself marked a landmark in VXE6 thinking about logistics and 
resources in that they shifted to an all-turbine air fleet after the Pegasus crash, turbine engines offering greater reliability and the benefit that they only needed to ship one type of fuel to McMurdo Sound, leaving the piston engine aviation era in the past and its avgas with it. As Pythagoras and other Greek thinkers showed us several thousand years ago, you don't actually need to go to Antarctica to think about it and to engage with it. And Jim Butler's been doing exactly that from the Northern Hemisphere, specifically County Cork in Ireland. Got my list of questions here. I'm speaking to Jim Butler, who's been corresponding with me about iced coffee for the last five years, I think. And Jim hasn't visited Antarctica yet, but interacts with it from half a world away by visiting the memorials and sites of significance. And uh, recently made a pilgrimage to the, the Shackleton Museum in Athy, and I'm very excited to, to hear about it. Jim, welcome to Ice Coffee. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, can you tell the listeners a bit about your, your interest in Antarctica and how far, how far back it stems? Um, yeah, that's a tricky one because I, I, I can't quite pinpoint how it, how it came about. I mean, I'm you know, quite interested in history in general, but I was I was very sort of narrowly focused on like Second World War kind of stuff. Um, but at some point, I, I diversified. Uh, but I, as I said, annoyingly, I can't quite remember how. I have a theory uh, that I read. I, I read. I have the uh, Ranoff Finds Scott book, which is not something that I would have bought myself. So I, I don't know how I came by it. Um, but I read it and. I'm guessing that must have been my sort of gateway drug, as it were. Now, I didn't particularly enjoy the book, and I, you know, I wouldn't think I wouldn't say it's particularly reliable. You know, it's fairly, I don't know, biased in favour of Scott. Um, but it certainly got me interested, uh, and I, I, I went on to you know read other books. Um, I think I, I, I was living in London around this time, so there was various kind of exhibitions, this sort of thing. I, I remember going to see. Uh, an exhibition of the photography of uh, Hurley and Ponting, and that was pretty awesome. Um, so perhaps that also, you know, again, I can't remember, was that what sort of got me in or was that after I got hooked? Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult to kind of pinpoint, but I'm, I'm well and truly hooked now um, to the extent that I found myself searching for a podcast on, you know, the history of, of you know, exploration in Antarctica, which brought me to uh, iced coffee. So, as I said, I must have been pretty uh, enthused at that point to go seeking that out. And I'm, and I'm glad I did. Oh, as am I. And um, can you talk listeners through both the visit to the museum, but the, the path that you took to get there, I find interesting too. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I guess I'd describe myself as a, as a fairly reluctant motorist. If I can avoid getting in the car, I will. Uh, so the museum is in a town called Athai, which is it's about 200 kilometers uh, north of Cork. I'm in Cork City in uh, Ireland. Um, so it kind of felt like it would be a pretty gratuitous elective journey to go to Athai to see a Shackleton Museum. So I kind of thought about how can I, how can I sort of justify this and you know make a day of it. So I managed to round up uh, a friend of mine, and we embarked in a fairly convoluted. Uh, Odyssey, but uh, by bus, train, and bike. So we, we we 
uh, took a combination of buses and trains and uh, cycleways, which brought us to Athai um, in a very extremely pleasant manner. You know, it was just, you know, it's all much more relaxing when you're kind of traveling under your own steam or sitting on a comfortable train. Um, and of course, you can bask in the the smugness of not having uh, contributed to any uh, emissions in the, in the car. Um, so yes, we, we, we reached Athai uh, in the afternoon. Um, we had to do a quick sort of Clark Kent style change of clothes out of the sweaty uh, cycle gear into something more civilized for the museum, which we did along the, the canal around, you know, behind a bush pretty much. Um, and we uh, yeah, made our way to the museum. The museum itself is in a beautiful, uh, it's, called, it's, the, it's the old market house from the 18th century. Because uh, Athai is kind of a you know market town, it's not too far from Dublin, um, so kind of sort of a provincial market town, kind of the, the outskirts. Um, it's a beautiful building in a beautiful square. There's a there's a, a courthouse nearby, which is also kind of a, of a similar vintage. Um, the square is called Emily Square, uh, and I, I'm assuming that's named after Shackleton's wife, but I I, I don't know for sure. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm not too, it's, I must look into that. Um, the museum itself is, is great. Uh, Sinead was the curator and I just want to thank her for, she opened especially for us. They don't usually open in the, in the afternoons, but uh, due to our unnecessarily convoluted routing, we could only get there for the afternoon. Uh, so thank you Sinead for opening for us. Um, they, say that they're the only permanent exhibition to Shackleton in existence, um, which which sounds amazing, really. Uh, I, I never got a chance to visit the the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge, um, so I, I would have thought they would have something as well, but um, I'll, I'll have to report back on that. I hope to get there at some point. Um, so yeah, there was, a, there was an exhibition, obviously, to Shackleton. Uh, Lots of interesting photos. Um, there was a there was a there was a very interesting letter that he wrote to Tom Crean, urging Tom to do uh, to do to sit an exam, to, presumably to get you know to uh, get promoted, I suppose. Um, and it seems that Crean, which is which I find it incredible for such a a guy with such a you know heroic and courageous history, it, it seemed he needed this pep talk from Shackleton to go and sit the exam. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was obviously nervous about it, and the, the letter was just saying, "Look, you've, you'll you'll ace this. You've, you know your your experience will clearly, you know, set you in good stead. You'll be fine." But Crean was just uh, he had no fear of wandering around Antarctica on his own. But the prospect of sitting down for an exam terrified him. It seems, uh, but I think I think he did the exam and it, he passed it no problem, as as we all knew he would. Um, there. There's a really impressive model of the endurance. It's like a 15-foot model, um, which very impressive to look at. But they also apparently used it uh, in the Kenneth Branagh movie um, from the early noughties. I don't know. Have you have you seen that movie? I have. Yes, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I actually thought it was too short. I felt like um, I think I think it was sort of like two one and a half hour sort of segments, and it felt like they could have taken 10 up 10 sort of you know i suppose it wasn't practical but you know it felt like i just they kind of cut out too much and it was you couldn't really do justice to the whole thing in two to three hours but uh yeah no it was, it was really good um but yeah so apparently they used that model in, to make that which which looking back you know i don't i don't recall thinking that the 
the ship in the movie looked fake or dodgy or you know so impressive um besides the uh the shackleton stuff there's uh there's a there was a lovely section on the kind of the history of the canals so the, the, there's a uh, the grand canal which is an important part of you know irish internal navigation uh passes through Athai, um obviously taking goods up to dublin uh and that was obviously a huge part of economic life of the town and just life of the town in, in, in general from around i guess sort of the you know the turn of the 19th century for about 100 years until the trains and then cars took over so that was a that was a great uh it was very interesting especially because the our next route to, to, to get back to home to cork we were going to be cycling along the path of the canal to get us to the next uh train station so that was quite interesting um there was other sections on the kind of just the general heritage of the town there's various castles and strongholds uh and you know the history of the various like the norman invasion and various uprisings against british rule and so on so you know that stuff was always always quite interesting uh, and a section on world war one because quite a lot of uh, like everywhere in ireland quite a few you know lots of local people would have signed up uh and obviously died serving in you know, the first world war um i guess what what specifically spurred me on was uh, a recent documentary on tv about it was in, well it was entitled shackleton's cabin which is uh it's the it's a, it's from his final expedition which is the um uh, shackleton rowett expedition um please correct me if i'm wrong here by the way on any of these no details. that's correct yep um the ship was the quest which i think was quite a small one by well i guess they're all quite small but but even by antarctic expedition standards it was particularly small uh so they were short of of accommodation so they built a, ca- uh, a cabin on deck for shackleton um and you know what makes it particularly poignant is that he actually passed away uh in that cabin you know i think just after they left south georgia he he fell ill he, we as we know he had a fairly dodgy well, we think he did because we, we think he had a dodgy heart. He wouldn't let anybody examine him, so we don't know for sure, I suppose. But we know he didn't exactly live particularly a particularly healthy lifestyle, um, and I think he had a heart attack uh, and, and died in the in that cabin. Um, and there was one just one particular anecdote about that, which always sort of moves, moves me a little bit, was that he it was quite a few uh, old endurance hands that that signed up again, which itself sort of baffles me to be honest but why would they go back for more but they did um and hussy who was the, who was the guy i think he was was he a meteorologist he was some one of the scientists but he was the guy with the banjo um and, and he was he, shackleton you know, obviously when they were trying to walk off the ice uh his personal belongings were obviously kept to an absolute minimum because you know they obviously had to carry it all but Hussey's banjo was was exempt because of, you know obviously was deemed to be crucial to morale. Um, but on the on the night he he sort of fell ill on on the quest expedition. He he, he asked Hussey to come in and play him a few songs from the old days, which I thought was a kind of a nice, just you know lovely kind of moment. And you can kind of imagine how you know it must have been his kind of his happy place. You know, looking back, having successfully escaped. Um, you know he must have looked back pretty fondly as you know his, his kind of his finest hour uh 
notwithstanding the whole Rossi fiasco, but we won't, let's not get into that right now. Um, so the, the cabin was preserved, um, and it's quite a long story, uh, so that, that's covered in the documentary, so I suppose I won't spoil it. It's probably available to watch without any geo-blocking, usually. Um, but the cabin is it's going to end up in the museum. The, the, the documentary implied that it was there already, but it hasn't quite made it, but it will be there soon, so I guess we'll have to go back to check that out. Um, but yeah, that's that's going to be the sort of the centerpiece of the museum. So that's something to look forward to. Um, so yeah, it was it was an extremely pleasant uh, visit, very enjoyable. Sounds like a cracker, and I'm embarrassed. We we were speaking before I pressed record about the pronunciation of place names, and I got. Oh, I'm scared to say it now. A thief. <laughs> a thigh. In the introduction. Yeah, a thigh. So, yes. There we go. A thigh. So think, yes. Think of the 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 body part with ah. <laughs> okay. Um, what other uh, Antarctic memorials or sites of significance have you have you made it to? Um, uh, yeah, a few. I mean, not. I mean, I wouldn't like to, people to think I'm, you know, actively looking for these things. But I kind of keep an eye out for them. And if I happen to sort of encounter them on my travels, then I'll kind of check them out. Uh, so I, I guess when I was living in London, uh, there's a place called Water, Waterloo Place, which is a, a square right in the heart of central London. Uh, and that's where the Scott, there's a statue for Scott and also for Franklin, who's uh, a kind of a counterpart in, a, in the, the North Pole. He obviously infamously died along with the other 120 odd men looking for the Northwest Passage. Um, and I, as far as I recall, their statues are kind of like opposite each other, opposite sides of the square, sort of intentionally or not, you know, symbolizing the opposite ends of the, uh, of the globe. Um, so that was that was London. Uh, I, I passed through Cheltenham, which is a town in the west of, of England. Uh, I was with a few mates for a rugby match, um, and we were visiting a few uh, pubs along the way, as one does on these sort of uh, trips. And I, I knew there was a, a statue for uh, Edward Wilson, who's from Cheltenham. So it would have been a tough sell to persuade the guys to sort of voluntarily uh, go there. But I, I plotted a route from pub A to pub B that happened to pass by. So we got a nice photo uh, uh, of uh, Uncle Bill, as he was known, sort of a Scots right-hand man and a sort of a general good egg of Antarctica, I think. Um, the main one, I guess, I've been to in Ireland, of course, is Tom Crean. So Tom Crean's hometown is a place called Anascall, the west of, the west of Ireland, uh, which itself is a beautiful little village in a stunning area and like the area in general is a really popular sort of like tourist area because of the incredible scenery and fantastic beaches um so Anaskol is quite close to those areas so it, you know i tend to sort of pass through it once or twice a year um it's where it's where he's from and it's where he settled down when he finally packed in the exploration um and he i can't remember did he did he build the pub from scratch or did he purchase it but he, he ended up uh owning a pub there which he called the South Pole Inn which is still there to the to this day it's it's uh, it was in the family until relatively recently uh, but it's still um, it's still called the South Pole Inn and it still has a fantastic array of sort of memorabilia and newspaper cuttings and so on inside 
uh, and it's, it's just a great pub. But it has a nice outdoor area now, which these days is it's quite it's quite it's quite nice. It's nice to have the option to be you know outdoors these days. Um, there's a beautiful. It's it's right next to, the, to a river running through the through the village, and it's a nice little path for kind of a short walk alongside the river. Um, across the road from it is the actual sort of official Tom Crean Memorial Garden, which is. Uh, it has a kind of a few bits and pieces. The, the main one is the statue of Crean himself, which is kind of Crean in, in a classic pose, holding two puppies, based on you know a fairly iconic photo. I think everybody would have seen of him, um, yeah, with a couple of dogs from uh, Terra Nova expedition. Uh, so I, I kind of had this tradition with the kids of you know posing next to us with with my kids. Uh, which was fine when they were, you know, zero and two years old, but it's getting, uh, they're now five and eight, and it's, it's, getting, it's getting increasingly difficult to replicate the pose accurately as they get as they get bigger. Um, but I'll, I'll keep trying as long as I can. Uh, in addition to the statue, there's um, there's like there's a couple of plaques commemorating the, uh, you know, the the endurance and the Terra Nova. Uh, expeditions. Uh, Green was also on the Discovery expedition, but like, I, I don't recall anything specific mentioned you know, to that, uh, referring to that. Um, but I could be wrong. There's other things. There's there's a uh, there's an obelisk, um, and on top of the sort of little obelisk is a piece of stone from uh, Shackleton's graveyard in Gritviken. Gritviken. I'm, I'm not too sure how to pronounce that correctly. Uh, down in South Another Georgia. Man. Yeah, yeah, we need a Nor we need a Norwegian consultant for this this segment. Um, yeah, so uh, Alexandra Shackleton, who I think was the granddaughter, uh, she she presented that um, uh, about fifteen or twenty years ago. Um, so that's on display. So there's there's a little uh, little plaque commemorating that, and it's as I said, it's a piece of piece of stone taken from his uh, from Shackleton's resting place in South Georgia, um, and there's there's other plaques and kind of similar things there's there's um i think i think uh, teddy evans who uh, famously was the was the guy that that Crean and lashley saved um from you know pretty much near death the famous solo march uh, i think i think teddy evans i know i know he i know he attended Crean's funeral i think he also may have sort of dedicated something similar um but i, I that could be my memory playing tricks on me um, but it's just a lovely, it's a lovely garden, lovely, lovely space. There's like, there's, as I said, there's about five or six different kind of like stone monuments and statues and they all kind of complement each other nicely. Um, Crean's graveyard, or his, well, his, his, his grave, his, his tomb is, is about a mile away. It's about a mile sort of up a country lane, um, incredibly sort of remote, very, very peaceful, tranquil graveyard. That's, you know, most of the graves are at least 50, 60 years old. Um, and his, he, he has a kind of a, a family sort of tomb there. Uh, it's It's got a, so in addition to the names and the dates of, of the people buried there, it has uh, a very simple inscription, home is the sailor, home from the sea, which is quite a, you know, evocative kind of powerful um, inscription, I think. Um, the other green sort of, Thing there is actually his the house where he grew up, uh, which is now available as an Airbnb, uh, which I haven't been to yet. It's quite, it's quite expensive, so I don't know when I'll get a chance to go there. But it would be lovely to visit it because I, I believe it also has um, a trove of 
memorabilia from you know obviously his personal memorabilia which would be pretty cool to uh check out so i'm hoping uh maybe in the off-peak season might might bring the, the family down for for a visit um so they're i guess they're the ones that i've visited so there's quite a few that i'm hoping to to visit so in a sort of a slightly unusual quirk it turns out there's quite a lot of um guys from county cork where i where i am who uh were involved in all these these expeditions it seems it seems to be a kind of a statistical anomaly so many of them um so i guess the first one chronologically is a guy called uh edward bransfield who is credited with being the first person to to see or to sight the antarctic continent now this is a as you well know it's a very murky business both metaphorically and uh meteorologically who you know who saw antarctica first but so maybe you can maybe you can confirm but my understanding is that he is generally credited with being the first yes yeah okay it's 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 smith and bransfield on the williams and at the same time nathaniel palmer and bellingshausen were in the area Nathaniel Palmer didn't keep a detailed log because he was making buckets of money killing seals. And Which the was, Russian was the at the time. expedition. <laughs> it was. And the Russians probably sighted Alexander Island and thought it was the mainland, but would have seen the mainland had there not been fogs when they were further north. Yeah, so Bransfield, uh, so he, he's from a little village called Balanakura near a town called Middleton, which is very, very close to Cork City, uh, and he's commemorated there. So that's definitely on my on my to-do list. Um, then we have uh, the town of Cove, which used to be called Queenstown, which is quite famous as being the Titanic's last port of call. Um, it, it's, it dominates Cork Harbour, which is... Um, I think after Sydney Harbour, it's the second largest natural harbour in the world, and it was a huge British uh, sort of military base um, back in the old days. So, you know, very, very strong naval tradition. Um, and there's a guy called Robert Ford, who was uh, a petty officer on Terra Nova. Um, and he was, uh, he's commemorated there. He, he's I, I, he's one, of the, one of the guys whose name doesn't really crop up that often, but... You know, by all accounts, he he was you know, you know did a great job. Uh, was you know, like all of them, they were all very competent guys. Um, so he's he's down in Cove. Um, then we have Timmy McCarthy. So Timmy McCarthy is uh, was on the Endurance, and he was one of the six uh, six guys uh, on the famous final leg, the uh, the epic uh, Elephant Island to South Georgia. Shot in the dark, really. I mean, it was a miracle that they got there, I think. Um, but he was one of the guys. And interestingly, of the six on the James Caird, th- three of them were Irish. So Shackleton, Crean, and Timmy McCarthy. Um, in fact, I, I find it quite interesting that like, no, quite a lot of people in Ireland don't really know that Shackleton is basically Irish. Uh, you know, his family were, were fourth generation you know, living here for four, you know, four generations, and like he moved to London when he was ten, so he's 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 you know he's pretty pretty Irish. He's he's more Irish than most of our footballers. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think it's yeah, people just people don't realise that. Um, 
So yeah, sorry. So Timmy McCarthy, yeah, he was on. He was one of the six, and you know, some some of of the six, Chippy McNeish, the the carpenter, uh, and Frank Vincent, they were sort of partially selected because they were basically troublemakers, uh, and Shackleton didn't want to leave them behind, causing trouble back on uh, Elephant Island. Whereas Timmy McCarthy was selected, I think, pretty much purely on on merit. You know, he was just you know a key a key guy that would be a that, you know, very valuable addition to the um, to that to that trip. Uh, so yeah, so he's he's commemorated in uh, in Kinsale, which is another beautiful uh, town quite near Cork. So that, that's you know, both both Cove uh, and Kinsale are really really nice places to go anyway. So you know, it's it's not much of a of a of a kind of an ordeal to get there to visit these places. Um, I had totally forgotten about uh, Patsy Kyohan. Uh I hadn't forgotten about him, but I had forgotten that he's from Cork also. Uh, so he he's he was another guy on Terra Nova, um, on the Terra Nova expedition. And just I guess you know people you know keen uh, people who were interested in that will, will probably have will probably remember the name, but they'll definitely have seen a picture of him. He, there's a, there's a really great photo of him in winter quarters in Cape Evans. Uh, working on a model of the Terra Nova ship, which is one of the kind of the iconic, I presume Ponting took it, uh, photos of the guys, you know, because it, it was a pretty pretty successful overwintering the first winter. Um, and I really like that photo because, it, you know, it, it sort of it humanizes the, the non-officers, you know, the whole, the way things were back then, the whole sort of fairly rigid class structure and so on. Certainly, the contemporary literature tended to kind of gloss over the other ranks, whereas in reality, they were all like you know they were handpicked. You know, they were all extremely competent and able guys that you know perhaps don't get the credit that they're they're due. So this is just it's a, it's a it's a great photo of him working on a really really detailed model of of the ship. So yeah, he's from a town called uh, Court Macsherry, which again is just slightly further along the coast. Another absolutely beautiful village which you know it's these are all lovely sort of like tourist destinations or you know family day out destinations in their own right um in fact i i i, I did a little bit of homework before this chat um and i'm glad i did because i i i, had, I was a little bit rusty and a little bit hazy and i i kind of i conflated some of these guys and their memorials and and as i said i, I totally forgotten about uh patsy Kyohan. um in fact, I, I I had thought that Robert Ford was the guy in Court Mac, uh, and I'd forgotten that there was one in Cove, which is quite annoying because I was actually in Cove uh, last Sunday, uh, and I was literally within about twenty meters of uh, of the memorial because it's in a park where I was last Sunday. Unbeknownst to myself, I was within twenty yards of one of these uh, one of these things. Um, but luckily, Cove, as I said, it's 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 very close by. It's it's like a it's a twenty minute train journey, so it's 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 an ideal sort of uh you know weekend excursion um so I, i'll be back there quite soon so uh while it's it was tantalizingly close i, I will be there I'll, I'll be back fairly fairly soon i imagine um and the other thing i had totally forgotten is that timmy mccarthy uh had a brother uh mortimer mccarthy um and he served with scott on the terra nova expedition um so in fact, so the Timmy McCarthy Memorial is, is in fact, it's a statue of, of both of them, uh, Timmy and Morty, as, as he was known. Um, 
and it's a, it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, well, I, I guess this will be too easy, but the the McCarthy brothers are one of two sets of brothers who served under Scott and Shackleton. So the question is, who is who is the other set? Which I think um, will probably be we talking... quite easy for most of your listeners. I'm thinking Ernest and Frank Wilde, but yes, I'll. That's yeah. that's who you had in mind. Oh, what yes. a relief! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah I was we feeling that bit out. Feeling the pressure there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that's that's to be honest. The, where I read this, it didn't actually give the answer, but I, I that, it's got to be those guys. I can't think of anybody else. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, so as as I said, uh, there's a kind of an unusual cluster of, you know, relatively key. Well, not, well, not quite key. Well, some of them are key guys, I suppose, uh, around Cork. So they're they're all on my to do list. Uh, and as I said, they're they're all nice places to go. So I can you know, I can pass them off as sort of uh, day trips for the family rather than rather than pilgrimages to Antarctic uh, veterans, and every, everyone will be happy. Um, there's a place called uh, Banbridge, which is a town in, in Northern Ireland, which is, which is the opposite end of the country, and that's where Francis Crozier was from. And uh, Francis Crozier is, you know, he he'll have appeared in in the narrative uh, as second in command to James Clark Ross, and they're they're pretty incredible. Uh, I, I guess 1840s, early 1840s, um, they visited Antarctica. They you know, made lots of, of incredible discoveries. Obviously, Ross Island and all the all the places that become synonymous with Scott and Shackleton a few years later. Um, Crozier was second in command of that expedition. I think he commanded the Terror. Um, and of course, Cape Crozier on Ross Island is obviously named after him, which features heavily uh, the famous winter journey of uh, Wilson Bowers and. Cherry Garrard to get the Emperor penguin eggs, which sounded like a barrel of laughs, uh, complete insanity. But they get, they get, they lived to tell the tale. Um, so yeah, so he's Crozier's from Banbridge, which is the opposite end of, of Ireland. Uh, so getting up there to see that is slightly more ambitious. But I'll, I'll get there someday. He, I think, he, I think there's a statue uh, outside his his house, uh, and possibly. Uh, the house itself may be a little mini museum. I, I can't quite remember, um, but of course he he ended. Up, he was with Franklin on the on the Franklin expedition, so he also met a fairly bleak end in high latitudes, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, hoping to hoping to uh, get there at some point. That's a, just a lovely way to engage with Antarctic history. Um, from half a world away and I uh, really I love hearing your updates as you as you get around these things uh, previously on Facebook and now in in email um, the photographs that you send through just I'm really pleased that you take the time to do the sorts of things that I do in <laughs> In your yeah, local, well, re- um, re- rest bit- assured, I'll keep you in the loop. Uh, yeah, it, 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 again, <laughs> it, it's because there aren't too many people in my, you know, circle of friends here who are interested. So it's nice to have somebody who <laughs> appreciates it and doesn't think I'm a raving lunatic for uh, for doing this sort of thing. 
<laughs> and yeah, the the depth of knowledge with which you speak about the stories, I I really feel um, a kindred spirit at at work. Well, I mean, without blowing too much smoke up your arse, that's a lot of it is uh, is from listening to the to the podcast. Um, I, I, I I'm I'm a hockey umpire um as well as another kind of hobby and that involves quite long car journeys um during the hockey season uh i i'd often fire up um one of the long you know typically one of the long ones i.e terra nova to kind of keep me company on the journey uh so i've kind of heard 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 those stories often enough now for it uh for the the names and the places to sort of sink in thoroughly um but it's, it's you know I like to, I like to kind of brush up every now and then and um, you know occasionally I kind of you know I, I digress into different areas of sort of history you know but then you know you, you kind of return to the the polar stuff after maybe six months or a year year back and you kind of read read new books and it kind of brings it all brings it all back because you know some of the details get a bit hazy um, but it's kind of it's like getting reacquainted with an old friend. That's incredible the the places that people have taken me in their ears um so quite often it's car journeys but people have have had iced coffee playing as they've worked the harvest in their combine harvester and Mm. people have taken me to both ends of the earth and to every continent and that's kind of nice to have been i haven't experienced those things but just to think that i was part of those experiences you know people's lives is kind of nice yeah, I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's quite synonymous. I mean, in my head, driving to Dublin for a hockey match is is synonymous with uh, listening to iced coffee. Although these days, I, I I try and go by train if possible. These days, um, so it's not, it's it's, uh, you know, when you're driving, you don't have it's not that easy to be faffing about with your phone and different podcasts. Whereas on the train, you can get more flexibility. Um, so I'm not listening to them quite as regularly on on those specific journeys these days. But the most the most common uh podcast listening scenario for me is if I'm going out for like a, a jog or a cycle uh and and occasionally sort of the stars align and like you're describing some particularly harrowing or you know physical ordeal that they're going through you know dragging the the, the sledges uh, and I, 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 it just it just happens to coincide with you know maybe like I'm on a hill and I'm I'm slightly tired I'm not for a second comparing that to what those guys went through, but it's it's just slightly easier to try and to put yourself in in the heads of you know what they were enduring, you know, when you yourself are a little bit <laughs> slightly tired, you know, it, it, you can kind of extrapolate and go, you know, really really appreciate the absolute misery they went through. Like, I mean, I, I think these guys are all lunatics. I mean, I'm I'm glad they did it because it's given me a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting to read about it. But I think they are—they're all a bit nuts, to be honest. Well, thank you so much for listening to the series and for getting in touch. I've really enjoyed our correspondence over the years, and it's been a delight to speak to you. I'm gonna hang up the hang up the conversation and uh, let you get on with your Sunday, well, just, Jim. Just thank be- you. For just your before time. you do that, can I just say thank you very much for producing such a really, really excellent, like high-quality podcast. Uh, it's just it's just a privilege to listen to it, and it's it's just, it's just that the knowledge, uh, the knowledge, but also the delivery and the humor is it's just you know it really makes it stand out. And I, I think I, I think I really like the way you, you're coming at history from 
a scientist's perspective, which is maybe not that common, but it's it's, it's just really great. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for having me and, and just keep up the superb work with the podcast. I uh, hope, hope that we get to share a coffee and um, catch up properly sometime, Jim. Yes, absolutely. Let's hope that happens. Lots of mutual appreciation society shenanigans going on at the end of that interview. But if he didn't say those things about the series, I'd have to say them myself. So thank you very much, Jim. I've interviewed Jeff Maynard, I think, three times for the series to date. And so long as he keeps publishing books about Sir Hubert Wilkins, I'll keep having him back on. Here he is talking about his latest outing. I receive a lot of opprobrium from other bibliophiles for drawing in the margins of my books and writing notes on the frontispiece and taking the highlighter pens to the text. But there are certain books on my shelves that don't receive that attention. Things like Under Antarctic Ice by Norbert Wu and Endurance by Carolyn Alexander. The illustrated Sihub Wilkins will fall into that realm. It's absolutely beautiful and I'm speaking to Jeff Maynard about what wound up the clockwork to get a fourth book about Wilkins out and about and how you chose what would go in this. Sure. Okay. Um, The previous books about Wilkins were uh, typical sort of non-fiction books where I talked about aspects of things he'd done, you know. Um, And like most of those books, they have sort of 16 pages or eight pages in the middle where you have a few black and white photos and show a few things. It was really quite frustrating because researching him, he started taking photographs pretty much from the time he arrived in Sydney and he did so all his life. And he was a good photographer. He recorded everything. And in his among his records, not just at the Ohio State University, but in private collections, there are literally thousands of photographs. And unlike other explorers um, he took good photographs wherever he went and so looking at those I really wanted to put that before people and say you know yes he flew over the Arctic Ocean yes he flew in Antarctica yes he was here and yes he went there and all that but look at his photographs and it was really an introduction to his photographs and um, because you know, you see yourself, each chapter you, you, it goes on to a different thing and you get half a dozen photographs of when he went with Shackleton. I mean, his trip with Shackleton um, on the quest, there's hundreds and hundreds of photographs, particularly from South Georgia, because he was waiting for, for Shackleton to turn up. Um, and then he, um, uh, he decided to go up and um, cover the route where Shackleton had walked over the mountains and, and so he went up there and he took these amazing photographs of all the mountains and all that sort of stuff Um, anyway I I really wanted to to give people a sort of a a taste of it Um, and so I went through them all it was very um, frustrating not being able to use a lot more photographs Um, I I really I just had to pick out what I thought was a, a good random sample uh, and, and in the book too, which I put in there, I put a lot of objects because besides taking photographs, he collected things. He was just this um, a collector, you know, almost a hoarder. Um, so he keep uh, off the, for example, off the quest. There's a picture in there of a, a big uh, water pitcher or jug with quest on it. You know, there's also um, 
uh, plates and uh, cups and things like that in, in, in amongst all this stuff. So um, it, it was just to try and get people to look through and say, wow, you know, this is, this is an amazing collection, an amazing person. And, and hopefully from the book we, we get more interest, we get more interest to say, well, you know, let's have a look at more of his photographs, which is, you know, what I'm considering doing in some sort of... Ultimately, you know, I'd love to have some sort of photographic display or something like that at one of the museums where you blow some of these up or put them up on the big screen because uh, with, the, with the full oh, and half glass plate negatives, you can enlarge them you know, almost a theatre screen size and, and, and see incredible detail in there. And until you do that, you don't actually see the detail. So um, out of this, I would like some... If, if there is an appreciation for the photographs that he took, um, perhaps we can... Uh, I, I can organise some sort of um, exhibition or something where you get to see his photographs up large. Um, because w when you do see them, you know, I put them up on a big screen and had a look at them, uh, they're quite stunning, you know. I mean, they are—they're stunning in the book, a lot of them. But to see them up on a big screen, they're stunning as well. But um, uh, like everything, Wilkins, it's, 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 there's just so much you really don't know where to begin. Well, that came through in the supplementary document of his writings that you put together as well. It was clearly, yeah, just a, a font of of written material that you had to had to pass. Yes, um, I think I say in the introduction of the book that um, I just started typing it up and, and putting it in order uh, from all these... Because he continually wrote letters to people, he wrote reports. Um, when I was typing it up, I, I got up close to 300,000 words, um, which is three times the length of a normal book, and thought, well, you know, what, what do I do with all this? You know, it, it, at some point in the future, you know, some sort of book on his collected writings. But again, um, it, it's almost too much. Um, you, you, you don't know what you've got to select it out and, um, and, and say, you know, this is, this is what he was doing. It was just uh, some of it's quite fascinating. You've told me in the past that even after decades of researching through the archival material and writing about yep. Wilkins, you still found him really enigmatic and there are insights in this new publication that really opened my eyes to yep. aspects of his life that I had no idea about. Have you got a better bead on the man? In, in some ways I have and in some ways I haven't. One of the things that I, I, I reveal in this book for the first time um, was an affair he had in Adelaide in 1908. He was 20 years old, um, falls in love with a, a young woman. Um, they both came from strict Protestant parents. Um, and it was one of those sort of um, Romeo and Juliet stories where uh, the girl's parents were going to marry her off to somebody else. And so um, Wilkins and the girl decide they will both commit suicide by taking uh, potassium cyanide, I think it was, which he got from his work as an electrical engineer. And uh, before they could both take the poison, um, she sent him a note, and I haven't seen the note, but I've had it on fairly good advice that it contained the words, something along the lines of, you go on with your life. Um, 
no point us both dying or something like that. And then she went and drowned herself. Uh, Wilkins took the poison. Uh, it failed to kill him. His family nursed him back to health. And then that's when he left um, and went to Sydney. Now, the thing I ask people to think about is, is most people know the story of Romeo and Juliet, the star-crossed lovers and the suicides that get wrong and all this kind of thing. And so uh, one way I sort of say, if you want to try and understand Wilkins, uh, imagine the story of Romeo and Juliet, but at the end, by some way, Romeo survives. Juliet dies, gone, finished, Romeo survives. What does Romeo do with the rest of his life? Can he go back and work in the family business? Does he go back to, it was uh, Rosalind, I think, was the first interest or something. Does he go back and marry her, have seven kids and settle down and work in the market with his family? Or what does he do? And if you can kind of think about, well, what does a person in that situation do with their life? Um, you might sort of start to get a hint of, what Wilkins was doing, because I think he was just restless all his life. He, he, he wanted to come back to Australia and settle down, but he never did. He, he could never just settle anywhere. And um, there was that restlessness about him. And I don't think he quite understood himself why he was doing a lot of things. Um, but as I said, he, he, once he set off on this incredible journey, through the first half of the 20th century he just constantly wrote letters he had amazing adventures and he took photographs and, and um so now he's he's not a he's he's a bit the old sort of zen thing about don't try and you know don't seek the answer you know seek only to understand the question and he's, he's just a big question and you've got to just constantly kind of go into it because i there there is no answer you know he's, he's just a just a, a, a complete enigma to himself, even. Uh, well, I mentioned to Jeff when he first arrived tonight that I, I was reading a book about Catalina flying boats recently and came across uh, almost you know, throwaway note that mm. one of the aircraft pictured was used by Sir Hubert Wilkins in the search for a, a missing Russian aviator. Mm. I went to a second-hand bookshop today and turned up a copy of um, Flying Over the Arctic by George Wilkins. Oh, really? Fifteen bucks if you if you need it. No, I've got one. No, you've got I've, one. I've, I've got a couple. One of I've actually yeah. No, I've got a couple, but that that's uh, that's quite sought after. So um, oh, you know, I'll, hang, I'll hang on to that next time I'm good, down there. Good find for fifteen bucks that one. But um, as you mentioned, he, he just threads his way through the first half of the twentieth century. There's not yeah. many major events that he's not either directly involved with or tangentially attached to. Yeah. And what winds up the clockwork of that that character yeah. is it's beyond me. And that revelation that you added in this book about that star-crossed romance and the, yeah. the suicide of the girlfriend and the attempted suicide, it stunned me. It was mm. a major revelation to me. I, I did no no one's and there's been you know a few people have been writing about Wilkins lately and there's you know a few biographies that generally sort of look at the boy's own adventure side of things um, and I really sort of thought well do I put that in you know is is it you know is is that the right thing to put in but I thought well until you actually put it in um, it, it it's probably the best reference point to say well. When you consider that, you start to think, well, 
you know, he was doing it for a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot, uh, pe- people who just come to him from the outside say, oh, you know, this guy, okay, he, he flew over the Arctic and he tried to take a submarine to the North Pole and all that kind of stuff. That's all. He must have been this sort of boy's own adventurer character and all that. Um, and no, he was much deeper than that and much more conflicted in himself. And he was also, uh, uh, <coughs> you know, um, he, he had this very strict Protestant uh, upbringing, you know, and, um, uh, and and that clashed with a lot of things within himself in terms of, you know, he wanted to study science and, uh, uh, you know, he was conflicted in lots of ways. Um, but in other ways, you know, very clear. He just said, well, you know, I'm going to go and do these things. And uh, uh, I, I, I divide the book up into sort of two parts, as you, as you know, the first half when he's Basically, he's known as George, and then he becomes famous, world famous, and gets knighted and becomes known as Sir Hubert. And so, the, it, it, and in a way, there was sort of two parts of him in his life like that too. There was the, the person who didn't want to be very, you know, who was quite happy to take this sort of back seat and uh, just do things. And uh, but of course, once he was world famous and Sir Hubert, he couldn't really do anything without being noticed by the public. Um, followed and photographed and all that kind of stuff and I think that was a conflict you know that conflicted within him as well um, something that I've never understood about him is why when writing autobiographically he goes that boy's own vein why do you think he or do you have any inkling as to why he that came later um, that that came later, pretty much um, the 1940s. He, when he went back to America, he he'd, he'd been in Australia. He wanted to set up Australia's Antarctic program. It it didn't happen. He went back to America in 1939. Uh, he went on the lecture circuit, and he started to rewrite his story then. And he started to write it for radio. And he was, um, there's a lot of notes, and he's writing these sort of scripts uh, about, you know, my adventures kind of thing, where you'd go on radio and read them. And that was a way of making a living. And they, he, he, he wrote quite lengthy stories that had that boy's own um, adventure feel about them. And that sort of became the, the, the icing on the cake. That, that sort of became how he hid what really was with inside him because he was still conflicted. And um, when, when he died, um, the first biographer to come along was Lowell Thomas. And he basically took those stories and put them out as his biography. Um, and they were never really meant to be a real biography of Wilkins. They were purely meant to be a sort of stories for the radio and things but that biography by Lowell Thomas became the first one and and, um, and even today um, you know when Peter Fitzsimons did his book on Wilkins um, released uh, late last year he, he just quotes Lowell Thomas all the way through it and it's like well look it's not re- it's kind of what happened but not really what happened kind of thing and, um, and, that, and that still goes on today and that was another thing that I really wanted to do in this book was kind of throw that out the window a little bit and, and sort of say, you know, here's his photographs. And, and of course, as you were in between all the photographs are actually directly quotes from Wilkins writing to people and uh, things said about him. And, and, and 
uh, you know, if, if we could um, get rid of that sort of boys' own adventurer image, it uh, would help a lot. The <clears throat> book itself is just sublimely beautiful. Um, the photographs, as you mentioned before, withstand enlargement. Mm. And he had a fantastic eye for composition and the storytelling power of the, the new medium. Can you talk listeners through some of the some of the most striking images that you really get stuck on in this in this publication? I'm um, well. There's a few areas I get stuck on. One one of the one of the reasons one of the areas for me as an Australian I still come back to is World War One photography. Um, he was at the Western Front from August 1917. Worked with Charles Bean. Uh, was there for 18 months, uh, went to Gallipoli with Charles Bean at the end of the war and then spent um, six to eight months cataloguing all the photographs so that they could be come back to Australia and put in the Australian War Memorial. That work is far more extensive. It, it, he was responsible for close to about 4,000 photographs in that period of Australians in World War One, And he, he photographed obviously the Western Front he photographed the battlefields of Gallipoli at the end of the war. He took a lot of photographs of the Australian Flying Corps and he took some amazing series of photographs of the HMAS Australia. So in a sense, he's covered the Air Force, the Navy, Western Front, Gallipoli. He's covered pretty much Australia's World War One effort with the exception of the Middle East. Um, that, that's something, and you know, I've put some of the photographs in there. Uh, that that's a whole area for me that it just needs so much more work to explore what he did. Um, I think his first trip to oh, sorry his first flight in Antarctica when he went down there in 1928 he took some of them a beautiful series of photographs. Um, some of them he would hand color the slides and show them as a, a slide presentation. So when you look at the the first. Well, it was the first flight in Antarctica, so, um, but it's the first aerial photographs we have of Antarctica from 1928. Um, photographing the mountains and things from the air, uh, they're spectacular, you know, and to see them coloured the way he wanted them coloured and things like that, 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 was, um, that was great. Um, it, it's a bit hard, I mean, the, the, uh, the Graf Zeppelin around the world flight in 1929, I mean, Zeppelins always look fantastic at any time, but... but um, I've got a few pages in there for that. I could fit a few pages, but he, he did a magnificent sort of photographic essay of the, this around-the-world flight, flying over you know, Tokyo, flying over Russia, flying over America, over the Pacific. It was just... Uh, that, that was amazing. Um, and, uh, of course, his, his submarine attempt to get to the North Pole. You know, um, uh, The photographs aren't technically that great but he did take the first ever photographs under the arctic ice and that's and i'm pretty sure he did that with his little leica what he did was um the, the submarine he had had uh portholes uh, in the conning tower so he, he he writes how he sort of pushed the thing he, the submarine got under the arctic ice and he took photographs out the uh, out the portholes in the conning tower so um and they were actually color filmed so, so that was sort of, you know, to, to take those as well. Uh, a couple of disappointments probably is when he first flew over the top of the world in an aeroplane across the Arctic Ocean in 1928. 
Um, not a lot of photographs there. He filmed that more, um, and there, we still have the grainy film of that. But he didn't still didn't do a lot of still photographs in that. That's a, that's another reason too. He's he's, he's um, uh, it, it's tricky because this is a bit of book of photographs. Um, he was carrying a movie camera at the same time, so he was putting down the putting down the still camera and picking up the movie camera. Um, unfortunately, because a lot of the film before about 1928, because of the type of film it was, it hasn't been preserved. After that, um, it's a sort of, as far as I know, and I don't know a lot about it, but it was like a nitrate film that wasn't, unless you converted it to something else. In the 1930s, it just, um, uh, it's highly flammable and it uh, fell apart. Some of it was. There's some great film of, uh, uh, in the 1920s. Um, and, and what he took at the Western Front, uh, that was all converted and copied by the Australian War Memorial. But uh, th th there's some really terrific stuff that, that would be good if we had it from the 1920s, and uh, unfortunately we don't have it in film. And um, but again, it, it sort of it kind of goes on because um, the photographic sequence he took when he went, or photographs he took when he went with Shackleton, 1921. Um, Incredible photographs of, of the voyage of, of South Georgia and the voyage back. Um, again, there's, there's hundreds of photographs in that collection, and um, it's a matter. It, it's not only simply a, a matter of picking which one, but you, you've got to go through negatives and literally hold them up to the light and think, well, is this any good? Because they've, they've never been actually you know, scanned or, or, or printed, so you're still sort of looking through boxes and negatives, trying to. And another issue too is that um, uh, they weren't in any order. He hasn't catalogued them, so they were just, you know, you might have a box of negatives, and there might be some Shackleton, some World War One, some Graf Zeppelin, and some Arctic expedition, you know, penguins, and you think, well, I've got no idea when he took these. So that's also a bit of an ongoing issue with him. Um, it, he's a he's a work in progress. In addition to what we've lost through technological happenstance is also the deliberate losses that Suzanne in, yep. uh, imposed on the collections. Yes, that 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 was that was that was sad. Um, <clears throat> she really and um, she she really wanted him to be remembered as she wanted him to be. He was a conflicted character. He he did suffer depression. Um, he was also a bit of a ladies' man. Um, she was probably aware of the story in Adelaide. Um, after he died in 1958, she really wanted him to be remembered um, as she felt was appropriate, which is the heroic figure that was deeply in love with his wife, meaning her. Um, so there's enormous gaps in his writing despite the fact there are hundreds and hundreds of letters and reports and all that sort of stuff, you find gaps and you can match the gaps up with times when you know there are other women in his life. So she's basically gone through and, um, as far as I know, pulled them out and burnt them or somehow destroyed them. And, and there, are, there are sequences in, 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 in gaps in the sequence where he says, you know, I'll write you next Tuesday and there's no, no letter next Tuesday. And this constantly goes on. And there are big gaps, as I said, when you know he's involved with another woman. So how much she destroyed, um, 
I simply don't know. Um, and uh, he was engaged to another woman. He got engaged in 1925. Um, he's with the, you know, engaged to the woman for a couple of years. Why he broke it off and married Suzanne, I don't know. Um, but that 1925 to 1928 period, there's a, there's a huge gap in his letters and uh, virtually, virtually no letters. Um, and um, uh, that's kind of sad too. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a massive jigsaw with a lot of pieces that have been missing and you have to accept that you'll never find them. That's an aspect that um, I was aware of, but I think this book really reinforces that he was um, quite a ladies' man. Yes. And he photographed and interacted with the women that yes. he encountered in his travels in... Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a few few ladies in... I've put a few photographs in, you know... Um, he would write letters and they would write letters to him. Uh, fortunately, Suzanne didn't get her hands on everything. Um, you know, when he died, there, there were a couple of sort of private collections and other people who had letters. Um, there's a couple of letters he wrote to a lady in Sydney after he left Sydney in uh, 1912. And he was up in the Arctic in 1913 and he's writing her these great long letters about what it was like to be up in the Arctic and telling her how lovely she is. And he wrote them to her and um, uh, Winifred Welsh. And um, they survived simply because she's obviously given them to her children or grandchildren or whoever. And someone at a later point has put them in the National Library of Australia. And so they're up there. And occasionally when he would write letters to, to people, um, including some of the girlfriends and things, um, those letters stayed with that person and um, ended up you know, with family or descendants and things like that. Tracking some of them down has been interesting. Um, and, and, and then you get sort of insights. But uh, Suzanne destroyed a lot, but she, she couldn't get her hands on everything. Well, it's terribly hypocritical given that she was having affairs herself and you wrote, wrote to Wilkins at one sure. point about sure. the pregnancy yes. after having not seen him for two years. Yes. Yeah. Oh, look, um, hypocrisy was in there. Yeah, sure. You know, um, but you know, not my place to judge either her or, <laughs> or him. You know, it's um, that's just how it was. You know, I was surprised that it was philatelists that stepped in and saved a lot of valuable material. Yes, it was because Wilkins would. Um, he he learned in the nineteen twenties that if you carry covers, which are envelopes with little stamps on them, and you stamp that there's been to to the North Pole or they've been to Alaska or something like that that they were um, people would give you money to, to carry them so he started selling these uh, to raise money to fund his expeditions and uh, particularly on the night uh, on the uh, Nautilus submarine expedition he carried thousands of them so you paid a you know if you before the submarine sailed you paid a dollar um, you wrote to Fred Smith or something, you wrote a letter to someone, um, you gave it to Wilkins, uh, it was stamped, he carried it on the submarine, it came back and you stamped it to cancel the stamp at wherever the submarine got to, and at the end of it, he then put it in the mailbox and it went to the person you'd sent it to, which might have been yourself. And you paid amounts of money for that. And that's and he, he had thousands of those, and that's how he sponsored his... Um, his submarine expedition and to a lesser extent his flights 
So when he died, there were um, in the boxes in the farmhouse where he lived, or his wife lived, and he, he visited, uh, there, were, there were thousands of these covers. And uh, when uh, Suzanne, after his wife died, she left it all to Winston Ross. Uh, which was her partner and he wanted to make money so he found out that these covers were valuable so he started trying to sell them and he got involved with uh, two people who are now dead um, no sorry one's still alive uh, he got involved with these people he started selling them covers and saying you know you want to sell them and, uh, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll all make money out of this it got into a legal dispute um, about who owned what and who was getting what for what. Uh, but those those collectors that got into the farmhouse and took the covers out, they, they, they preserved a lot of it. It would have been lost. Because in the, when that, there, there was such a, a jumble uh, that when they come in, they took all these envelopes and things with, with stamps and things on them. Inside were hundreds, literally hundreds of Wilkins letters that were still in the envelopes. And so they, they picked them all up and took away these boxes and said, uh, and then they found letters inside. So um, those were preserved, which was which was good. And that was another one of the, um, you know, sorting through the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. What's next on your radar? For Wilkins, um, the process of putting this book together and, and taking it out and showing it to people and obviously selling it and presenting and things has been a really been a very tough process but been a really enjoyable one and i would like to basically use it as a launching pad to say okay you know we've got an incredible collection of photographs um, with lots more available to us in in the archive in america you know what can we do visually can we can we can the War Memorial set up a sort of um, Wilkins um, display or can a, um, a, a South Australian museum do something to show photographically um, what he did? And, and, and so I'm really looking at how to use this book as a sort of um, take it to the next level, you know, and, and, and to also um, continue the research. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's still collections and, and papers and items and artifacts that, um, that I'm aware of that I haven't got to uh, in private hands. So it's, it's um, I, I can't really define where. It, it's, you, you, you can't organize anything with Wilkins. You just have to sort of um, go where he tells you to, which is annoying, um, and, and see what you find. Um, so, so, but but visually, I think what's been great about this is, as I said, you know, I, I, this is my fourth book, and the others are mainly, you know, written non-fiction books about aspects of his life. There's been a couple of others from other other authors, um, uh, but the, the when you see, and you can read all that sort of stuff, but when you see visually, it it just has a different impact. It just sort of it stops you almost and thinks, my God, look what he did. Um, and, and I found that was really rewarding about the reaction from people I got to this book was to say, wow, you know, look, look what he did. I, uh, you know, people who'd read my books about him or some other people's books about him still came up to me and said, you know, I've got a whole new insight. You know, uh, 
so somehow uh, I, I'm not quite sure um, I've got a couple other projects on my desk but somehow I'd like to continue down this kind of visual Wilkins way um, perhaps it's, it's, it's a, a sort of documentary style thing perhaps it's a uh, exhibition of his photographs I'm not quite sure but um, uh, visually he's, he's, he's quite a powerful character to follow so uh, it's something along those lines it occurred to me looking through the book and seeing all of the different projects at the different phases of his life if he wrote a script of an adventurous life yep. and incorporated all of those different aspects yep. editors and producers would say that's that's too far-fetched it's just yeah that that that's one of his problems actually because uh, more than one uh, producers come up and, and sort of said you know why haven't we made a movie about this guy? Uh, the pro problem being is, well, what story do you tell? Um, you know, stories generally have a beginning, middle and an end. You know, the hero sets out on his quest or he, you know, gets sand kicked in his face by the bully so he spends the middle part of the movie doing his push-ups and at the end he goes back and punches the bully, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's a movie story. Um, you, there's, there's no... It's very hard to get the Wilkins character arc you know where was he going with all this um, uh, that that's that's quite difficult to get people to say well you know what what part of his life do we do do we do we talk about the submarine attempt or do we talk about the, the flights do we talk about the um, uh, the other adventures and things he had um, it, it's it's how, how do you get that sort of character arc into the whole thing um, I don't know I don't know. Um, from a documentary point of view, um, I think he's, he's probably much more doable, um, simply because there is so much visual material. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for the amount of research that you've done to bring these books together, because it's increased my knowledge and insight into his exploration work, and has heavily influenced my writing and informed my podcast series mm. but I'm also grateful just as an Australian citizen that you have done so much to document such an important character in our history beyond the boy's own adventure aspect uh, yeah I, I realised when I began I, I think that was you know, as an Australian you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the Australian character that people try to define. I've always been interested in our our legends, if you like. You know, whether it be um, Nellie Melbourne or, or, or Monash or, or uh, Sir Donald Bradman, Kingsford Smith, of course, all that kind of thing. And when I first started exploring sort of Wilkins, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm, there's something missing here. You know, this this is a this is a piece of the whole Australian character that that we don't see you know this is the guy that was at the western front with um you know bean and monash this is the guy that sold the airplane to kingsford smith you know he knew nelly melba um i often sort of joke you know if i found out that he sold donald bradman his first cricket bat it doesn't make sense kind of thing you know I and mean, of course he didn't um but he was just there at the same time so in a sense it's kind of like he's at the in a lot of ways he's at the core of the australian character um, and yet he's unseen, and I find that fascinating um, because it, it's 
I, I often sort of say, search for what Wilkins was as a person, as a man, and his motivation is, in a sense, that uh, a search for the Australian character, because this is a man that was born. Uh, he was born between two Australias. He was born halfway between the civilized part, so far north of Adelaide, where where it was not, but but not quite in the outback or in the ancient part. And in, I often say he was born between two Australias, and he he lived between two Australias because he was. And again, we haven't touched on the subject, but the time he spent living in North Australia with Indigenous and studying and all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's a man that sort of really a, a lot of the um, a lot of a lot of the contradictions we have as Australians, whether we're sort of European or Australian and all that sort of stuff. He had them as well, and that's kind of where he lived his life. Um, and, and so, as I say, a, a search for his character is a really, a, a, in some ways, a search for Australian identity. And, and, and you'll never find it, but you'll always kind of keep looking for it and finding aspects of it and saying, OK. And that's what, fat, I mean, as an Australian, that, that's what sort of fascinates me in a way, um, to think here's this man at the core of all this, and yet we don't see him, you know. Um, and he's still a mystery, and he's a mystery to himself. And there's still so much. Um, as an historian, he's a great subject too, because if I go back and do, you know, want to write a book on Ned Kelly, there's 50 to start with, and every letter and postage stamp that was ever associated with any member of the extended Kelly family has been sort of catalogued and all that. Here's a character you can go and do and find. You can still open boxes and find letters and things that no one's ever read before. He's still, you know, Monash's papers are all sort of catalogued. So with Mawson, um, this sort of thing. But here's a character that's just so much raw material. It's, it's like walking out and just saying, well, you know, a whole lot of stuff, 100 years after, you know, the events, we, we're still we're still discovering this stuff. And, that, and that's... Um, you know, going into that new territory is, is always exciting and, and mysterious. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to chat to you and uh, look forward to seeing where you take things in the future. Thank you. That's Maynard J. 2022, the illustrated Sir Hubert Wilkins, polar explorer, pioneer, aviator, Anzac photographer, from Netfield Publishing, 220 pages, 200 photographs, hardcover. Recommended at twice the price. Go get a copy. There's only a thousand in circulation. I'm currently in a frenzy of reading as the series approaches coverage of the IGY and the subsequent drafting of the Antarctic Treaty. There are lots of nations about to head south in the narrative, some of those expeditions I've got covered from several angles. Some of them I've only got single tomes in languages that I can't read. So I'm doing my best to give the lead up to the International Geophysical Year sufficient coverage that the outcomes arising from it make sense. And to that end, I'm moving pretty slow in preparing my notes. So it's likely that the September and October episodes of Ice Coffee will feature more interviews and brief excursions into explanations of things like icebreakers and the way that they work and the way that they have been and are employed. Perhaps I'll 
trim up my essay on leadership in an Antarctic context and what I've learned about it so far in my, in my reading about and recitation of Antarctic history. Be assured that I will get back to the, the chronological telling of the Antarctic story, but the series is no longer a matter of giving coverage to single expeditions in well-defined time frames. Things are about to get pretty amorphous and I'm trying to find a path to giving that shift in mode a comprehensive and satisfying synthesis. It's a little bit daunting, but I don't mind a good daunt, and the series remains a source of joy for me, so I'm plugging away as best I can with the time in hand and the resources available to me. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided. I, I, you know, I, I mean, I've been at this for 20 years and I haven't scratched the surface. It's scary, you know. It's like, <laughs> what am I freaking doing? You know, it, re- it does feel like that sometimes. I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, this is book number four. I reckon I've got another three, you know. Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, I don't know what to do about it, you know.